No, there is an even weirder argument, which is that if you drive a very small mileage, go and buy a vintage Aston Martin. <laughs> I, I feel awkward making this argument because working in advertising, yeah. it feels like self, such a self-serving load of bollocks. It does. So had The Guardian not picked up on it and said Sutherland ingeniously suggests that, I wouldn't have had the confidence to advance the argument. Welcome, everybody, to the Uncensored CMO. Thank you for joining me. And in this episode, we have none other than the legend that is Mr. Rory Sutherland. I've caught up with Rory to talk about his new book, Transport for Humans, and much, much more. Now, I've met Rory on a few occasions, and one thing that strikes me about Rory is every time I meet him, he always tells me how he got here. So it was perhaps no surprise that he ended up writing a book called Transport for Humans. Now, in uh, my episode, I catch up with Rory to talk about the new book, but we talk about much, much more. As ever, it's literally like a runaway train when you ask Rory a question, and he really does take you on places and journeys you never thought you would go. But as always with him, Every single second is fascinating and full of genuine pearls of wisdom and insights into human behaviour and why we do what we do. So without further ado, let's get into it. Rory Sutherland. I have a joke in my meeting room, which is the, the, the welcoming sentence says, so we meet again, Mr Bond, but this time the advantage is mine. Like now, it. I changed that somewhere deep within the control settings of the Zoom software, and I'm not entirely sure how to change it You now it can't find it again. That's the sort of thing I do. When so at some point, I'm going to have to host a meeting to organise a funeral or something, <laughs> and it's going to it's going to launch with this... Um, I mean, my argument was, well, I might as well, if they've got to wait for four minutes before I log on, at least there might be something even vaguely amusing. But listen, let me start by thanking you for coming along to Orlando's book launch on Wednesday. And it was it was a, it was an honour to have you. And um, what what did you uh, what did you think of the great man's book? I think it's astonishing. I mean, it's a work of incredible kind of erudition. And I also think that it builds on and makes practical and applicable mm. quite a lot of some really important findings from social science over the last twenty or thirty years. And actually, I think progress in the social sciences isn't like progress in physics. Okay. I don't think we start getting things right. I think we make progress by getting things less wrong. Yeah. And we have proceeded. I would argue that's why capitalism exists. The, the point of capitalism is not to be right or to come up with a final answer. It's just effectively to find out what your competitors are wrong about. Yes. And, then, and then exploit that failing to fun and profit. OK, and the, the, the point I'm making is there are certain assumptions we made, for example, the assumption that we have introspective access to our own motivations and that we can reliably predict our own behavior in a context sensitive, uh, context free setting. Um, uh, and uh, other assumptions, for example, such that um, the part of the brain that makes the noise is the part that happens to be making the decisions. <laughs> okay. And there are, yeah. so, there are so many of these assumptions that are axiomatic in economics and in market research, I would argue. And the problem is, is that most business decisions are taken, I think, on the basis of three things. One, uh, you look at big data and you extrapolate the future from the past which is safe to do in the short term under conditions of not much change, but it's a fantastically dangerous thing to do um, immediately after a pandemic when a lot of behaviour is not going to mm. revert. 
Uh, the second thing we tend to do is we use economic logic as a proxy for human behaviour and we effectively treat decisions as what's optimal on average is optimal for the individual. Very true. Okay. So there's the assumption of ergodicity in economics. Uh, there's also the assumption of, you know, that utility is an additive function and that we have constant transitive preferences and that we are aware of our own preferences. And then there's the assumption in market research that you can really tell people um, uh, exactly what you would do under a, a variety of different circumstances. And furthermore, that you have the introspection and candor to do so when sitting in the presence of a bunch of strangers, which seems well, to be know, a, it's a very totally thing, unrealistic it? assumption. This, this whole idea of having two hours to focus on one thing in minute detail while being led yeah. by a moderator in the presence of people you have no familiarity or trust with is is an incredibly odd way of finding out what people think. And also, if by putting people in the presence of a bunch of strangers, what we know about human psychology, and you could bring in a bit of René Girard here alongside yeah. the Ian McGilchrist, is that people effectively are unconsciously thinking not what is a true answer here, yeah. but how will this answer make me seem to other people? Yeah. And, and the so, right answer, what's the perceived right answer? What's the perceived right answer? So I was talking to Stephen Pinker recently. He said name drop, dropping, but I, I was just interviewing <laughs> him for The Spectator. And he, he his next book apparently might be on the whole realm of common knowledge, which is we're trying to get second guess common knowledge in a lot of our decisions. We're not trying to answer truthfully for ourselves. We're trying to think, what's the consensus here around a sensible answer? And I, so uh, so I think that massively distorts group reports, uh, reports of people's preferences and decisions, partly because in a group full of strangers, particularly when sober, but even when drunk, yeah. uh, it's unlikely that we're ever going to really come clean about the very silly reasons we do things. Now, we do have exceptions to that. There was a wonderful piece of research, uh, which was depths, not groups, about 10 years ago to launch not Amazon, but a competing online book buying chain. OK. And one guy there who was kind of 24 and I think worked in financial services said after about 50 minutes of conversation, he said, can I be absolutely honest with you? Here? He said, I don't really like reading novels as much as I've claimed, he said. Um, but I have found that if you've read a couple of Ian McEwan's, you can pull a better class of girl. Okay? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> now, if you understand evolutionary psychology has the distinction between proximate and ultimate you know, the proximate explanation for why we eat scones is that they taste great. But the ultimate explanation is evolution gave us a mechanism to enjoy eating scones in order that we we remained adequately nourished. Because um, any evolved organism which found the act of eating disgusting and repellent wouldn't survive very long or reproduce. And so in terms of getting down to the ultimate reason why people read novels, I hate to admit, I think that guy was... I mean, it's very interesting, by the way, that novels are overwhelmingly bought. It's, it's an overwhelmingly they, female it's audience. Very female, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, there are, I mean, there are surprising, very surprising gender disparities. By the way, true life crime is really female. Now, I'm a true life crime, a bloke, but I'm a true life crime nutter. You know, basically, if I get back home at two o'clock in the morning and Sky Crime has got a two-hour documentary <laughs> on Ed Gain or Fred and Rose West, I'm there until three in the morning, OK? <laughs> but I discovered to my amazement that it also trends female. 
Because I would have thought, you know, no, I, you know yeah, hor- that's because horror, yeah. horror trends male, right? Yeah, yeah. That the fictional horror genre. If I said to my wife, "Let's go watch the Human Caterpillar," right? <laughs> you know, I think I, I think I get pretty, you know, pretty abrupt uh, rejection. Or, you know, what what should we do for Valentine's Day? I was thinking of, you know, a box set binge of the Saw sequence of movies. Now, I don't think my wife would like that. Okay, no. but strangely, the true life crime thing, which you would think is adjacent to horror. Um, leans female. That's so interesting. It's interesting to think about book choices, not in terms of what you might enjoy, but what it might help you do in terms of making you more attractive no, to somebody else. Absolutely. Which is, I which mean, there is a something to look at it like that. If you talk to Jeffrey Miller, he would say a very large part of our consumption of art and music is signalling of some kind yeah. or another. Yeah. And it's very yeah. noticeable, by the way. Um, I was talking on a Radio 4 documentary about Johnny Ramone uh, yesterday. And it's very interesting, isn't it, that there are these two genres of music which are generally socially a bit unfashionable, which would be um, metal, heavy metal, yeah. and country. Okay? Yes. Now, let's be honest, okay. First of all, if you don't like country, you don't really like music because country music is like, uh, music. That's what music is about deep down, yeah. okay. But secondly, the best of country and the best of metal is really, really goddamn good. Okay, so so why do people affect to disparage these genres? Punk, of course, in the early days was uh, was as valuable because of who it repelled as it was for whom it attracted. You know, and the whole point of punk was that your parents didn't like it. In fact, most of your contemporaries probably didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of the the Dr. Pepper or the Marmite of the music. It is. It is very much that, isn't it? Weirdly, I, I listen to heavy metal when I'm trying to concentrate is the most odd thing. But if I need if I need to write a presentation, I will put Metallica on and I'll get I'll get it done in half the time. Do you know the oddest thing? You're not alone in that. Several other people have and I, I, I've kind of gone, you what? And several other <laughs> yeah. people have said the same thing. It yeah. probably doesn't affect your driving so well. I'm never quite sure no, about true, that. I'm, true. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure average speed probably goes up. Um, <laughs> with, with, with. Very interesting thing about driving, by the way, we could change all of our behaviour in driving if instead of using the unit of speed as miles per hour, we simply had minutes per mile. Yeah. So if you reverse the equation, so if you replace miles per gallon with litres per 100 kilometres, people make more intelligent decisions around fuel economy because it doesn't sound like a big deal moving from 18 miles to the gallon to 26, okay? Um, Whereas actually it makes an absolutely monumental difference to the fuel economy of your car. Whereas moving from 50 to 56 seems like an exciting change, or 50 to 60, when comparatively it's a much more trivial change. Now, if we reversed speed, so it was time per distance, we'd realise that actually you don't save much time. You save a hell of a lot of time accelerating from 20 to 40. You don't save very much time going from 60 to 80. And I learned this the hard way, actually, by getting a sat, when I first got a sat-nav. I suddenly had a really useful lesson in sensible driving, which is, to be absolutely honest, you know, you can drive along the motorway, let's be candid, okay, 75, I'm not claiming I obey the speed limit religiously. And you can drive there at 75. If, on the other hand, you welly it at 88 miles an hour for a few minutes, okay, it is inordinately more stressful. 
It's enormously it more And you only more get difficult. about one and or two minutes. And you get one minute, minute saving. E- e- one minute on the ETA. So you go, hold on, I'm risking the life of my wife yeah. and children yeah. Yeah, 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 in yeah. order, basically, to arrive about 1.2 minutes earlier. And yeah. it's very interesting how the presentation of information, something yes. which we would assume is objective, which mm. is miles per hour rather than... And so the reversal of something, as simple as that, can have a huge effect on decision making so the very idea of objective decision making fails at the fall falls at the first fence yeah Yeah. it's funny i i think it changes a lot by the mode of transport because um so i mean i live in chelmsford so relatively large commuter town outside london and um what i find interesting is that so i sometimes cycle and i sometimes take the car but my perception is completely different on terms of how long it's going to take me in my mind right cycling will take forever and i always get there going oh this took me 10 minutes. In, in my perception of the car, it will only take 10 minutes. It takes half it an takes, hour. <laughs> yeah. It's really w- weird how... No, and know. actually, we're, we're very, very strange in our perception of time in all manner of uh, ways. I mean, one of the things they noticed, which I always thought was rather sweet, they noticed, I think it was Transport for London or National Rail or someone, noticed they used to measure what happened when a train arrived at a terminus. And how many people got off and how many people got on. And they started noticing a new category of people, which is people who arrived and stayed on the train for five minutes finishing their emails. Oh, I do that. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I, I tell you the weirdest <coughs> thing, right? So I, I've recently had reason to uh, go up to Leeds. And, and so I've been planning my journey. Fine place. And very I, fun I, city. It's lovely. I've discovered it. It's, it's very nice. What I've, and there were Going from King's Cross, there are two trains and they're, they're 14 minutes difference in terms of how quickly you get to Leeds. Are you actually more than then, are you? No, no, I'm no. It's, it's a customer of ours uh, based in ah, there. So um, yeah, just kind of popping up to to, to, to see them. Um, and, but what 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 I notice about my own behaviour is I arrive at King's Cross an hour before the train leaves, yeah. so that I can sit in the lounge and have some peace and quiet. But I obsess about whether I can get the one that's 14 minutes quicker. So it's really odd psychology that I, I will optimise the 14 minutes, but I'll spend an hour beforehand. Waiting in the lounge. Uh, uh, absolutely right. And also, by the way, I mean, funnily enough, Pete Dyson and I have just co-written a book on the behavioural science of transport. It's called Transport for Humans, subtitled Are We Nearly There Yet? And <laughs> yes. um, the point we make is that actually um, time uh, has, uh, first of all, th- the quality of time varies enormously. And I would argue that what we unconsciously understand, but which transport models don't, is that small slivers of time are useless whereas swathes of time are disproportionately valuable. Uh, so the value of time scales supralinearly in the sense that if I've got... I actually, funny enough, I used to live near Lancaster Gate and work in Soho Square, and the commute was too small because you'd spend all your time dicking around to get onto the tube. Yeah. You'd get a newspaper out or a novel out, and you'd read about a page and a half, and it was time to get off. And the dicking around to meaningful movement ratio, yeah. like short-haul air travel, actually. Yes. And that's why we took the Eurostar even when it took... They didn't need to make the Eurostar faster. We no. were taking the Eurostar even when it was three hours ten to Paris. And the reason we took it is, do I want a small amount of dicking around and a long swathe of time where I can get on with shit... And on mm. the way to the meeting, it was probably tweaking PowerPoint or doing emails. And on the way home, it was savouring the finest wines known to humanity. <laughs> you know, But the point I'd make is that we understand unconsciously at one level that there's a quality to time and that having two and a quarter hours. One of the things that most annoys me, you're going from, is it, is it Euston or King's Cross to Leeds? I'm, King's I'm Cross. a southerner. Yeah. King's Cross, it is King's, King's Cross. Cross, yeah. 
one of the slight things that does piss me off is preparing train, right? Because I, what I like to do is sit on the train. I'd actually pay a premium to sit on the train 25 minutes before it departs. To be honest, if it then leaves late, I don't care, okay? What matters is time I spend staring at the departure board. Yes. And they have this thing preparing train as though the train is a cake or something, right? <laughs> okay, I get it. There are people cleaning, right? Yeah. Okay, but, uh, you know, being being a bit nasty here, okay, you'll forgive me. I'm going to get some flack for this. But couldn't you, like, hoover the first-class compartments first and let us, <laughs> let us board a bit early? Yes. Okay? Yes. Right? Because that's all I want to do. I want to get yeah. there. I, I, I want, and, and Eurostar does this slightly annoying thing where it corrals you in a kind of holding pen until about 10 minutes before departure, then forces you all and to board And then there's a, there's a whole, like, like run. There's, there's almost like an Olympic sport. Almost of, a, yeah, like, despite the, the fact you have a reserved seat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's yeah. in this state of kind of paranoia. Uh, and then, by the way, you know, the premium, whatever it is, business premiere, is for some bizarre reason at the opposite end it's of the It's the furthest train. way, isn't it? You've got so to it's do like the biggest running. Great you're out of breath, aren't you, by the time oh, you get Absolutely, there. <laughs> yeah. You, well, I mean, you're halfway to fucking St Pancras by the time you got to the front of the train. <laughs> that's true. Oh, sorry, the, family the other show. Thing, the other thing family that's... Show. Uh, family show. The, the other thing that's curious is, is, is our perception of, of, of late. I, I was... Um, I, I looked at the board the other day as I was coming back to Chelmsford and I had five minutes till the train was going and I thought I've just got just enough time to get my latte from Cafe Nero uh, I was carrying two bags I had my ticket in my mouth I had the latte in one and the phone in the other and squeezing through the barriers and then of course as I got through the barriers I heard that horrible sound of beep 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 as the train doors are shut and the guy oh the no key, like it's turning it, it as I'm about 10 yards away and I'm like Hang on a second. There's over a minute till the train goes. Why we write about this in the, the book that actually yeah. trains are allowed to depart one minute before the advertised departure time, this, which this, is a nonsense. This is false advertising, Rory. Completely I mean, this false. wouldn't be acceptable in any other. Surely, now, if they'd read their Daniel Kahneman, they'd actually leave two minutes after the advertised time because Kahneman has done some work that shows that missing a train by two minutes is, or a flight is much, mm. much more frustrating than missing a flight by. 40 minutes. And it, 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 yeah. it, it, it supports, I suppose, that school of behavioural science which sees a lot of human behaviour as easily describable by regret minimisation. Mm. So a two-minute missing of a flight or a train creates a hell of a lot of if-onlys. If only I yeah, had, it's had a sliding doors before moment, I left. Isn't it? It's, like, it's sliding oh, doors. Damn it. Whereas <laughs> if you missed the train by 40 yeah. minutes, you go, I, I never was going to catch the damn no. thing anyway. Yeah. The, you know, it was a foolish act of over-optimism to even think I could do it in the first place. And so, no, I mean, one of the things that I think is totally um, not understood by businesses, and I, you know, when I give advice to small businesses, I just go, look, if you operate a dry cleaner or a cafe, okay, uh, Woolworths used to do this. They paid the staff until five past five minutes past closing time. And oh, the argument was that it, would yeah. re it didn't do them much good, admittedly. But the yeah. argument was it would really annoy people if they turned up at 5.01 and the store was closed. Yes. So, and yes, I said yes, the best that's... thing to do if you're a small business is make a great show of opening up the shop because the person will regard that as deeply flattering. Now, if we turn up at 5.01 and we're told, I'm sorry, we're closed, which happened to me in a... Seven Oaks Dry Cleaner, which I have not used for seven years as a result. Yep. We don't interpret it as silly me, I was late to the dry cleaners. We actually yep. interpret it as a personal insult, which is, I bet if, you know, I, I bet if I'd been one of the Maktoum family or Pablo Escobar, you yeah. would have pretty much opened up the <laughs> shop. But because it's only little old me, okay, yeah. you can't be bothered. 
And I never, well, used, cl- I never classic, used that dry cleaner ever again. It's true. The classic one, of course, is the muck breakfast. I have to say, if, if I could have one meal, sadly, and I, it would be oh, the, yes, the yes. Sausage, sausage and egg McMuffin. Is You're just, the Ron Swanson of uh, British I, yes. uh, marketing. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. Um, but, but there's that thing where you just crave one at mid-morning and then you pop in and it's yeah, I know. 10.31. They're sat there. They, they, they've already cooked them. They're, they're under the heaters, but they won't serve it because, sorry, sir, it's... Falling it's Down, past, actually. Um, the Michael Douglas film, Falling yeah, Down. Which that's is it. The, um, has one such scene exactly it around does, that. It does, very, and, and very odd. Yeah. That, that, that is your one-minute passing. Uh, the, the other curious thing I find with travelling as well is, is the, the pricing element, and, and I'll maybe confess to my inability to navigate such things, but I always have, when I go and, you know, go, go to the automated um, ticket thing, uh, you know, you've got a couple of decisions to make. There's usually the first class versus standard class. And depending, usually if it's not rush hour, well, standard class is absolutely fine. It's, it's an empty carriage and therefore it doesn't really make any difference. The thing that I've never got my head around is when you get the off-peak option, because I suddenly have this enormous panic going, when is off-peak? I don't know when off-peak is. Right. And um, the pricing is often determined by, are you travelling back off-peak? And I'm there going, <laughs> I, I've queued up for 20 minutes. I finally got to the machine. There's no one you. around. I can't ask anybody, can I save 10 quid by going off-peak? I don't as, know. As a <laughs> Colchester know. resident, I'm going to give you a great tip. Now, it only works, I think, after 10 a.m., but increasingly with flexible working, we're not going in at peak time and we're not going yes. in five days a week. So it's not worth having a season ticket. And um, I very frequently do a video call and a few emails at home and then potter in on an empty train where I can work on the train. Exactly. And it's a completely you, yeah. civil experience and cheaper. OK, now here's my little tip. OK, if you want a first class off peak uh, day return, okay, which is the best ticket of the lot, and you want to save a further third, you can't do it by buying a network rail card, but if you buy an annual season ticket for the Isle of Wight between Ride Esplanade and Ride St John's Road for about 200 quid, okay? It's like Amazon Prime for first-class day returns. <laughs> you get a third off every single first-class off-peak day return. And it's a, it's a, it's a grandfathered-in scheme from the days when there was Network Southeast. So yeah. the idea was that if you had a season ticket, an annual season ticket, i.e. a gold card, you were entitled, obviously, to a discount on off-peak journeys on journeys not covered by your season ticket. OK, wow. because the yes. idea was that if you had a season ticket, but one day in 20, you had to travel somewhere else. Yes. You know, it, the idea was it was fair. And this still exists. It's about £200. I've never been to the Isle of Wight, but I, for the last five years I've had an annual season ticket which would entitle me to ride along the pier if I wanted to. So there are thousands of people in the country that could, if they chose, to arrive at the same time on the pier in the, in the Isle of Wight have a lovely time. Exactly. You know, I would love <laughs> yes. Fortunately, I don't think all of us are going to arrive at once. Otherwise no, no, the chance of that happening is it's not going to happen. But, but listen, it, no, it, that's it, a very, it's a very interesting point, which is when is off-peak? And mm. will you find yourself suddenly buying the ticket and then being refused by the ticket barrier? Well, that, that's it, the panic. It's the uncertainty it, it, of coming back. And it, is, it isn't very clear, to be absolutely honest, because in some cases it depends on when the train arrives in London, I think, yep. not on when it, it departs. That's right. Yep. And it changes by service provider as well. They're not and so it becomes ambi- ambiguous yeah. on the machines, because if I were yep. to choose the slow train from Seven Oaks, I would arrive later than the fast train, and therefore the slow train that leaves earlier yep. might be an off-peak train. It's Again, you're right. They need sensible heuristics, which make this absolutely clear. Well, the crazy the crazy thing, is, uh, the bit I just don't physically understand, is why it doesn't go off-peak, and then while you're buying the ticket, knowing which you've already said London, Liverpool Street, it just should yeah. tell you. The times are these times, you know. There's also a really dumb thing, which is to buy a first-class ticket 
is inordinately more difficult on the machine than buying a second-class ticket. So they're throwing yeah. away premium, high-margin yeah. revenue simply through their choice architecture. Well, in any oh, other... By the way, by the way, I'm a very, yeah. very big defender of first-class rail, and let me just explain this. And I think it's important for organisations to understand this, that the what you're doing when you buy something de- um, d- depends very much on context. Now, my argument for first-class rail is very simple. Look, I know you all want to get rid of it because it's a pain, but let's be honest, OK? If you've got a reasonably nice car, first-class rail is still nicer than driving, but second-class rail isn't, OK? Uh, now, I always buy advanced tickets. Ogilvy, I think, technically says you're not allowed to do this, and I just say, I'm sorry, that's a load of bollocks. Look, I buy <laughs> an, I've, been, I've worked here for 30 years, right? I'm capable of catching a fucking train. So yeah. I buy an advance first, which is cheaper than the full fare second by some margin, and I do that. And if they complain, I tell them to go stuff themselves. And um, But my point there is that first-class rail, for a lot of reasons, the fact you can work on the train, what you're buying with first-class rail is serenity and a desk. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. You're not really buying transportation. And so by uh, it, the second they get rid of first-class rail, what they'll end up finding is a load of people basically start making the journey by car instead. And so this business of tiering things, you know, if, if you think about, okay, if you think about McDonald's or KFC, right, there are two reasons you go there. You go there for a bargain or you go there for a treat. And so this business of tiering things is really, really important. Tesco's finest, etc. You know that that but, it, it under I, and I, capturing the consumer surplus that way is a really important yeah. component of business. And I think we tend to have a business mentality which is people want low prices. Actually, about yeah. a third of the time they don't. No, if you're signifying an occasion, you want to pay more. Yeah. Well, I used I used to in a previous job uh, go first class, and in fact, but they had this weird thing where it depended on your status. So. But you could travel first class if you were with someone that had the certain status. But I, I always thought it was nonsense because, like, you know, if you said for £10, you can upgrade to first class and have an hour at your own desk with good Wi-Fi and be able to talk to your colleague, that, I mean, the ROI on that would be insane in terms of productivity and enjoyment and everything else. A sensible rule for things like that is not by seniority, but by length of service. I worked for Ogilvy for 30 years. I joined as a graduate trainee. I'm now the vice chairman, OK? If someone who's just joined Ogilvy, age 22, sees me sitting in, you know, coach B47, whatever it is, OK, <laughs> right? They're going to think there's not really much point in sticking around is, here, because yeah. I could be here <laughs> for 30 years. Yeah, I'm yeah, still yeah. travelling at the wrong end of the sodding train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there, you know, there is, there was a very interesting dot-com firm where your class of travel on airlines was dependent on length of service. And they had an annual conference... And the office manager, who was like employee number six, was sitting at oh, first brilliant. class in the front. The chief executive, who just joined, was sitting at the was back. In the back. That's yeah. class. Oh, I love it's, it. it but, but, but one of the great things, by the way, you know, and it's a bit of a pro-Brexit message, actually, but it's also a benefit, an unintended benefit of the pandemic, is you do see companies now actually taking employee loyalty seriously. Yeah. I mean, I think for the last 10 or 12 years, businesses just assumed there was an infinitely replaceable source of young minimum wage or inexpensive talent and that yeah. you didn't really have to worry whether people stuck around. I think it's, I think that's been a terrible mistake because I'm slightly sus- subscribed to the belief that in any organisation, a third of the people are doing about 80% of the work. And that's mm. because a third of them have just joined and haven't got a clue what they're doing. And a third of them are planning to leave so they don't really care. <laughs> OK. Sorry. And so so actually, it's the third in the middle 
who are disproportionately and therefore the longer the tenure you can make of people generally um and i think you know when we talk about gen z who they don't stick around well my argument is look we treated employment as a transactional relationship and they noticed and they behaved accordingly it's nothing generational about it they've just been alerted to the new context mm-hmm. in which you're employed which is yeah if right. we meet our if we meet our targets next month you still have a job that's that's yeah. not a human type of relationship you know, well, that, essentially, that, you know, the, the power balance has shifted, hasn't it? To, from like you know, time, a, a buyer's them. market, exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's now definitely a, a labour selling market at the moment, and yeah. wages are, wages are up better, more share options being offered, more kind of benefits of working for the company. All those things are coming into play now. And as, actually, as, actually, we've got flexible working in the sense that nobody's got the balls working. to get rid of it because yeah. um, the point is, it would be a, it would be a deal breaker for me. I mean, just as an yeah. interesting thought experiment, I met a guy who had been very senior at Barclays and he retired um, this is about 10 years ago and he started spending uh, four days of the week in France uh, in, in some presumably palatial home uh, you know with a swimming pool in the shape of a dollar sign or something and, <laughs> and three days a week in London as a sort of non-exec director he'd gone plural and after a few years of doing this people came to him and started offering him you know insanely lucrative jobs and he sat down with his family and said how much would they have to pay me for me not to be able to spend four four days of the week in France. And he decided there is no, given that I'm not immortal, okay, there is no amount of money that would make that worthwhile. Yeah. yeah. So he said, you know, I mean, I suppose theoretically, if they offered him a billion pounds, he could say, well, I'll do that for a year and then spend seven days a week in France. But he basically came to the decision that, it, that his ability to uh, be a twat that's Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> and Thursday. It's an acronym. Uh, was actually worth more than rubies, if you like. And yeah, I think yeah. quite a lot of us have made that discovery, which is that it isn't that we want to work less. I mean, if yeah. you think about it, not the, the problem with a four-day week as well is that we all knew perfectly well we get paid for four days and work four and a half. Mm. Okay. So nobody was prepared to take that deal. What we did discover is that autonomy, which is not free time, but free when and free where, is hugely valuable to us. And as I keep pointing out, no one knows how to tax autonomy. Okay. No. If you give me more money, yeah. they tax yeah. it. Okay. They tax if you give it. me more freedom, true. whoops, we don't know quite how to tax that, do we? That's very true. Well, it's interesting is if you go back to like what what the you know the invention of the London Underground did was suddenly mean that workers weren't constricted to us how far they could walk in an hour sort of thing to get a job. They could suddenly you know the, the, the that's labor in the book by the way. I didn't realise this, but before yeah. the tube came along, commuting by bus was kind of a middle class thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> but if you had the standard working man's job, the return bus fare, and I can't remember what it is, but it's in the book, would more yeah. or less mop up a significant proportion of your salary. So the tube, when it came along and undercut horse-drawn trams, as I guess they were, um, yeah. was absolutely transformative. And in a way, that's what working from home is taking the, the limitation of the commute. Now, potentially, you've got the entire world... At your, you know, in terms of hiring people, if yeah. you can be flexible, so I mean, it, it, it could it could have the same economic boost working from home as you got with the invention of the you know the the commuter train in in some senses. Yeah, well, it's it's what I call one of those important. I, I, I'm actually a bit of a Georgist, and um, uh, th- th- there's an economist in the 19th century, an American economist called Henry George, who believed that you should only tax land, not salary. 
And his argument was that whenever you had any form of productive economic activity, whether it was mining or factory making, but particularly activity which required you to be in a particular location to perform the function, the economic gains through labour disproportionately went to the owner of the land, not to the person performing the service or function. Yeah. Now, I would argue that's true of advertising. I've, I've asked yes. the finance department at Ogilvy. I've said, OK, I want to know something which I'm sure you've never calculated, which is how much do we have to earn for a client in order for one of our staff to have a curry? Now, what uh -huh. I mean is clients <laughs> yeah. pay us, then we have overheads, yeah. costs, yeah. etc. Yeah. Some of it goes in, in salary to a member of staff. Let's say we've got an incremental, you know, uh, then of that increment, 50% will end up going in transportation costs and um, 40% will go in tax. And then yep. of the left of the remainder, plus a bit of national insurance, I don't know, okay, of the remainder, a further 50% will disappear into the moor of his buy-to-let landlord or into the hands of Transport for London, okay? Yeah. Now, I, I kept asking the finance department, look, you're obsessed with efficiency, you people. Well, my idea of an efficient organisation is when, when a client gives us money, quite a lot of it ends up in our pockets, Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah sort the shareholders. I mean, you know, I know shareholder value <laughs> movement. You know, but I mean, I you know. I have to admit, it isn't. They're the landowners, it, aren't they? It, yeah. it isn't. It isn't the material interest of the WPP yeah. shareholders that get me out of bed in the morning. I hate to confess that, but I think that's true of ninety-five percent of people who who work actually. Um, uh, and uh, you know, we're, we have all kinds of motivations for doing a good job, of which shareholder enrichment is probably about number forty-seven. Um, unless you're bonus to an extent to make it really worthwhile, and that's about ten people typically. Um, but the point the point I'm making is that um, uh, I think uh, you know there's an extraordinary inefficiency in terms of the amount of money given that our clients are hiring talent. Okay, there's an extraordinary inefficiency between their payment to us and our and my incremental curry. Okay. Yes. Yes. Now, if you can reduce the extent to which that goes into the pockets of intermediaries, you're a more efficient and better business. It's very interesting, too, that the creative department at Ogilvy have been particularly militant about flexible working because their argument is we prefer it, we produce better work and we produce better work faster. So if you can find a flaw in that, in that reasoning, and I think the reason for that is interesting, which is if you're in any kind of creative job and planners would say the same thing, OK, uh, what you unconsciously do is you hack your environment to create a creative mindset. It, because yes. creativity is almost the action yes. of distracting yourself. It's a very yes. peculiar thing. Yes, good definition. It's almost like distracting yourself. Ted Hughes called it yeah. when a thought evades your body's inner police um, yes. force. You know, um, they're kind of fugitive thoughts, you know, creative ideas. It is when you break out of the routine yeah, of the environment. Yeah, you've got it exactly. That, that's when, exactly when it, all the creativity And homogeneity, yeah. you yeah. need huge <laughs> periods of what appears to our, our bystanders as wasted time, which is staring mm. into space, emptying the dishwasher, farting around. The process is necess necessarily has the appearance of being inefficient. Um, uh, and in fact, that's why creative people play fast and loose with deadlines because they know yes. from experience that every minute I wait, there's a chance for new information to emerge or there's a chance I get lucky or some strange new thought occurs to me. So they're very, very reluctant to start making decisions early. And John Cleese writes about this, by the way. I can really recommend his book called uh, Creativity, a brief, I think it's a short and cheerful guide. 
Oh, and it's a really tremendous, it's very, very short. I'll book. get that. That's, yeah. Very, very useful. Interview him if you like. He'd love it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'll do that. Oh, that'd, be, that'd be amazing. Because I think the thing with creativity is because we work so much with, you know, accountants that measure time spent, hours used and so on. Whereas actually the power of creativity to transform business is enormous. And, you know, and we're not valuing the output. We tend to value the input. So well, well, the two really things rich. that drive the two things that drive what you might call rational tailorist thinkers mad about creative people is there are two attributes which are necessary if you're going to be creative. One of which is you kind of play fast and loose with deadlines. And the second thing is you have no sense of proportion. Yeah. I always love the story. I don't know how apocryphal it is, but he tells it himself, so I think we ought to believe it, of Hegarty on a factory tour of Audi and everybody else is going, come, you know, come on, John, we need to go and look at this new production line. And John wanders off into a corner and sees a sign that says Vorsprung Dirk Technik and wants to know what it means. OK, now that is the absolutely, you know, characteristic yeah. thing that a creative person knows that actually the breakthrough often happens where nobody else is looking. Now, totally. to everybody else, that makes you look like a dilettante, as though you have no sense yeah. of importance or, or proportion. But it's yeah. an essential part of... Because what I always notice is that entrepreneurs and creative people aren't interested in mainstream decks of information, the kind of McKinsey deck which sizes the market or does all that, because their instinct is, look, everybody else knows that stuff. OK, so so bureaucrats and people who are ask coverers and pen pushers want to know what everybody else knows so they can defend their decision. OK, creative yes. people are principally interested in what other people don't know so they can make a decision that nobody else would make. That's such a good distinction. And because and, and, <coughs> Actually, gave me a sneak. Before, before I go on, yeah. Yeah. Uh, John, not only are you obviously Welsh, given your surname. Is that? Yeah. Is that, yeah. No, that's Where true. Yeah, Neath Valleys. The Neath. Tiny. Yes. Okay. We won't. We won't go on about it. Uh, so you actually wrote brilliant, fantastic stuff. Uh, so you've got two, two, two uh, self self declared identifying as Welsh people on the thing, but you were also the marketing director of Britvic. Is that right? I so you, well, yes, years ago. Yes, years until ago. about twenty twelve. Yes. So you right. brought us such genius things as Pepsi Max, which I think you launched in the UK. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Pepsi Max, uh, Lipton iced tea, Mountain Dew. Um, uh, yeah, a few classics. Yeah. Because, as you know from my writings, the whole carbonated drinks category absolutely fascinates me. Um, but I, I, I always really, really admired Pepsi Max. And we were talking about this the other evening, which is that yeah. every other diet product, in fact, most people you said didn't even know that Pepsi Max was a low calorie no, 50 product. No, 50% of people are unaware of Pepsi Max being low calorie, which just blew, actually blew my socks off. But the positioning genius was it actually suggested more energy more you know more taste and um so it's like pepsi only so it's exactly like beyond it, it, the meat it's, which yes, is don't more implicitly apologize for what That's your right. product doesn't yes. have say Here's it's the other pepsier than pepsi yep. itself exactly and beyond that. meat yep. is saying you like meat trust yep. me right. meat isn't yep. nearly meaty enough you need beyond yep. meat that's and I think it's so a we, were, we were going around brilliant. the UK sponsoring yeah. skateboard tournaments and extreme sports, you know, events, and you know, it was. And you repurposed "Do the Dew," or as Americans yes, pronounce it, that's "Do right. the that's Dew." Right. Yeah. Okay. Do you repurposed that as "Do the Max." That's it. That's and it, it. you so associated it with extreme if, sports. This is. I'm, I'm total fanboy yeah. here, John. No, 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 this is cool because this is basically there was a <laughs> there was a there was a period of time. This is late '90s, early 2000s where basically what we did is we stole the Mountain Dew playbook from the US with all the Do the Dew mm. extreme sports and just put a Pepsi Max wrap on it. 
and it did exactly the same uh, ex- yeah. same job, which was brilliant. And, and in fact, Pepsi Max, um, I think I'm right in saying back at the back then, it may not be the same now, was 40%. It outsold Pepsi Regular and way outsold Pepsi Diet. But to the extent that Pepsi Max was far and away the biggest line for Pepsi in the UK. Well, um, it, it, it actually lured me away from Coke for a few years. I was younger mm. then and probably slightly more extreme. Um, but um, uh, it was a piece of absolute genius, which is everybody who produces a product without something assumes you've got to talk about what the product's missing. And instead yes, you do absolutely yes. the opposite. So it's you a very do, interesting yeah. case. When we opened the behavioural science practice, the first, it was a bit like, you know, uh, I, I don't know if you know the Woody Allen uh, short story, which is about a time-travelling machine, about someone who wants to be projected back into Madame Bovary. No, Madame Bovary, that's right. <laughs> um, I think that's it. But but there's also a brilliant... Woody Allen's short stories are fantastic. I shouldn't recommend him now because he's kind of being cancelled, but they're still good short stories. And there's one where it's, you know, it's kind of uh, Raymond Chandler. I was just sitting in my office cleaning the debris out of my 38. And the first phone call we got when we opened the behavioural science practice was from a biscuit, a, a, an agency at Ogilvy in Belgium. And one of their clients was a biscuit manufacturer. And they'd researched a low-fat version of the biscuit. And everybody said they wanted it. And um, uh, they, duly, nobody in blind tastings could tell the difference in taste between the low-fat biscuit and the higher-fat biscuit. Then they launched the product, Julie, and the sales fell off a cliff. Okay? Disaster. And this was one of those cases where you can actually solve the crime without leaving your chair. <laughs> so we said to them, you didn't put now with lower fat on the packaging, did you? They said, well, of course oh. we did. We spent a fortune. We spent a fortune reducing taste. the fat content. Yeah. And it will ruin. First of all, it'll yeah. ru- it, it yeah. won't actually just reduce your propensity to buy the product. If you do yeah. buy the product, it'll make the product taste worse. It, it, so yeah. they should have borrowed the Pepsi Max thing, which is saying right. now even tastier, and then lower the fat content using stealth. Well, I've, I've, I've got the worst scare story for this, actually. Cause I oh, was, lovely. Oh, um, fantastic. Uh, well, I was marketing director on LucasAid when we had to take the sugar out of LucasAid Energy. Now, it, when we did the diagnosis, we lost, what was it? We lost about 20% of our consumer base, 15 million in retail, in 15 million in ex-factory sales. It was a complete disaster. Now, it wasn't, the, it wasn't that it didn't taste as good. It's that people heard through social media that we had taken the sugar out. It was the perception of change, not the reality of change, that caused all manner of people to... So we actually worked out that 80% of people that were no longer buying had not actually tried the new formula. They just heard it doesn't taste as good anymore. You know, so even though we didn't say now with less sugar... That's where even social media can, you know, we, we needed we needed the Pepsi Max even more energy. <laughs> yeah. what, what was behind that? Because funnily enough, it, I think with diabetics, or it might be something to do with kidney dialysis, I can't remember. Lucozade was actually used in hospitals to measure people's That's right. uh, sugar That's levels right. because it contained an absolutely measured dose of glucose, if I'm right. Is Correct. That right? 20, 20 grams. In fact, it was, you know, it was ideal. Opt- in fact, it, it was invented because um, uh, a physician saw how many children were dying after an operation. And it wasn't the operation, it was the inability to recover from the operation. And so he worked out the optimum amount of glucose, it was 20 grams, I think, was, was the ideal serving, was enough to get the body kind of going again and help recovery. And that then became, you know, dispensed in chemists and turned into the product we know and love. And, and another, um, it was a chemist, worked out a formula to make it taste good 
so that people then would take on the right amount. And actually diabetics, and this is the mistake I made, but one massive mistake is we responded to the government's instruction to take sugar down, get below the prescribed four and a, five, four and a half or five grams of sugar per 100 mil. <coughs> what we didn't realize is that diabetics know precisely how much Lucozade to drink when they're having a hypo. And we, we caused all manner of confusion because they couldn't do the calculation in their head and, and therefore they switched to regular Coke because they're the only two products on the market where you know precisely how much to drink in that event. Oh, so it created actual havoc. Because uh, uh, the yeah. other thing I suspect what might have been going on is that um, although ostensibly in its official manifestation, Lucozade was an energy drink for sporting athletes and so forth, it was also for many people a hangover cure, wasn't it? Unofficially, totally. it had 100%. this yeah. 100%. Yeah, because because it, 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 it I mean, glucose actually um, compared to, you know, normal, normal refined sugar um, has a as a sustaining energy lift. So whereas with a caffeine or whatever, you have the high and the crash. Actually, what you get with glucose is because it way it works your body, it actually recovers you more effectively over time. So it works perfectly in the, you know, day after. In my before. boozier days, there was a Lucozade barley water thing, which I found remarkably good at uh, hangover recovery, I seem to remember. And that would explain it. Yeah. So what you were doing is there's always this slight problem of what your product officially does and the reason yes. people find it useful. So you've got to be... This is why I, I think my colleague in New York, Chris Graves, talks about uh, the two things are the real why and the hidden who. Yes, that actually yes, right. there's yes. an element of detective work required into uh, required in finding out, um, uh, you know, in a sense, uh, the real motivation behind, the, you know, the yeah. ultimate rather than the proximate motivation behind buying most products or goods or services. And then there's also the hidden who, which is your customer base is never as neat as it looks on a PowerPoint chart. Oh, totally. Totally. No, that, 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 that's very, very true. I mean, the other thing when, when I did the, post-mortem on the on, on the project i wish i'd read th this article back in the late 80s when coke uh relaunched as classic coke when they did new coke and i think it was called the, the the wrong the wrong was it the wrong question fallacy and what happened is the question they coke asked everybody is do you do you, what do you think of the new taste of coke right everybody said they liked it and in fact the scores came out as a marginal gain uh, on average the question they should have asked is how do you feel about your choice being taken away and actually yes. if they'd asked that question and if i'd asked that question with lucozade how do you feel about the fact i'm it's changing i would have got the answer because i then did ask that question and asking that question after the event predicted a 21 percent decline in my sales and the actual decline was 20 percent. it would have perfectly told ah, me the right answer it would have made you look like a genius yeah i know i know well we're all genius in retrospect aren't we but yes you know, aren't we just yeah <laughs> I wish I, I wish I'd read that article before. It would have so, would have saved me. I mean, job. I mean, that's one of the biggest. I think one of the biggest things that we fail to understand is that people value this. This, is, of course, has a bearing in flexible working. People value autonomy for its own sake. So, I mean, they're wonderful experiments. I think we prefer sitting in seat seventeen A on an aircraft if we've chosen it than if we're allocated the seat which we would have chosen anyway. Yeah. So there's this it. weird thing, which makes yeah. perfect sense in evolutionary psychology terms, which yeah. is don't, you know, we should feel a, a certain sense of discomfort when we're being railroaded. Don't take choice away. 100%. Don't take choice away. Yeah. yeah.
yeah, that's it. Um, and, and a couple of things that you very kindly gave me a little preview of the book and uh, a couple of things, actually going back actually to what we talked about earlier in terms of McKinsey consultants, um, the whole group think idea. And there's this lovely quote from, is it Maynard Kane saying, better to fail conventionally than succeed unconventionally. Yeah, the full Which quote I, is, I think, worldly wisdom teaches that it is often better it. for the reputation to fail yes. conventionally yes. than it is to succeed unconventionally. And I think it's a very, very good insight because... If you look at, I mean, this goes back to the whole logic of loss aversion. And there are a load of debates about loss aversion, arguing, for example, that under non-ergodic conditions and multiplicative dynamics, loss aversion is perfectly rational. Okay, so let's park that. But Amos Tversky, Daniel Kahneman's partner, always explained loss aversion very simply by saying, look, here we are. We're both academics at Stanford. Okay, can you think of anything we can do today that will make our lives immeasurably better? No, not really. Can you think of anything that could make our lives immeasurably worse? Well, actually, there are thousands of things. You know, you can go and insult the dean. You yes. can, you know, I mean, you know, there are literally thousands of behaviours that can have catastrophic consequences, and there are remarkably few that have genuinely beneficial consequences. It's a very narrow path we have to tread. And so avoiding catastrophe is simply more important than attaining perfection. But then if you put someone in a working environment or in an institutional setting, that's amplified much more. Yeah. I mean, I didn't say there's nothing I could do at WPP or at Ogilvy, okay, which would cause them to give me a quarter of a million dollars. Literally nothing, okay? You know, yeah. if I discovered a cure for cancer, they'd probably name a basement meeting room after me after I left <laughs> or something like that, okay? But there are thousands of things I can do that can get me fired. Yeah. And most of those things, the safe course of action in institutional decision making is basically to be boringly rational. Either you do yeah. what you've always yeah. done before, or yeah. you do what everybody else does, or you do what makes sense. Yeah. Now, the, the first two are unoriginal. The third one is based on the fallacious idea that the course of action which uh, ha has the best reasoning underpinning it is the one that's going to have the best results. And I, I don't think that's true. I don't think quality of reasoning necessarily no. translates into quality of outcome. We assume it does because we've yeah. been taught that at school. But genuinely speaking, there's so much of the future that's unknown that it's yeah. not a safe thing. And you might argue that actually doing things that other people wouldn't do pays off disproportionately because when you do succeed, you're in an uncontested space. You are. You are. Yeah. But, but I, I, I think I've discovered in my career that, that that is the case, but that is still not celebrated. So conformity, uh, rational, logical explanation for why you're doing what you're doing and, and following the lead is appears to be the career strategy that gets you the furthest, even though it's not what makes you the most valuable or shouldn't uh, make you the most valuable. I mean, the one defence of the ad agency's continued existence is it's about the only business space where you can get fired yeah. for being unimaginative. <laughs> That's true. Okay, I mean, there's, I can't think of anything yeah. else. It's always yeah. much, much, much easier to get fired for being illogical than it is for being unimaginative. Well, well, actually, I suppose now I think about it, that's probably, from a CMO perspective, part of the value of having an ad agency is I, I can get them to do the stupid things that I want to do, and then it, and if it goes wrong, I can fire them. <laughs> uh, my, my great value I derive from behavioural science is that sometimes you can actually find a justification for something which, at first glance, seems self-evidently ridiculous. Yes. But you know what? I, I, yes. you know, the product's it, 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 not selling, yeah. so we'll raise the price would be an example of that. Yes, Brilliant example. Brilliant. And, and there was another quote as well about how um, 
was it was it what Daniel Kahneman did is bring science to explain what advertising and used car yeah. salesmen have known their whole lifetime. Yeah, which that I was think... another Amos quote. Actually, it was yeah. He said yeah. Uh, what Daniel and I do is we put into kind of. Uh, a recognisable framework, those things which second-hand car salesmen and advertising executives have always instinctively known. And yeah. I have to say, direct marketing, which is where I started, and I still, I'm still a direct, I'm still a pupil of Drayton Bird, to be absolutely honest, you know, dressed up in, in new plumage. Um, but <laughs> you know, the one thing about direct marketing is it did at least try, didn't do it brilliantly, but it did try to kind of derive learnings from... Uh, what it found out, you know, to, to kind of categorise and classify um, some of the things that direct marketers had discovered, which were unexpected outcomes. And so when direct marketing had a lucky accident, you learned from it. Whereas when mm. advertising did, you generally didn't much. That's true. That that makes a ton of sense. I mean, it's partly why I, I kind of enjoy my work at System One, because it's it's kind of codified what I've instinctively known about human behavior and witnessed yeah. over my career, but could never argue in the boardroom against the CFO and the, the CCO who always got the rational, well, the sales figures show this, you know, and, 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 and I, I think behavioral science has done an incredible service uh, of the, of the art, uh, you know, or explaining why things happen that can't be explained by rational economical logic sort of thing. Well, often what it is, is there's a meta logic or there's a deeper intelligence to what's going on. Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, I mean, the, the classic example of this, I think it was a Heineken marketing director who bought Chapel Down in the UK. And he did make the, the product a bit better in pure quality terms. But his main decision was to ramp the price up to parity with champagne. OK, yeah. for British sparkling wine. Yes. Now, to any economist, that would seem completely deranged. What could be better than something that tastes as good as champagne but costs nine ninety five? Okay. Unfortunately, the reason you buy champagne is not really to drink in and of itself. It's yep. to mark an occasion, or yep. to or to signal generosity, or to signal yes. hospitality. And it doesn't matter how good the drink is, if your recipients think you've bought it for eight ninety five, it's not doing its job. Yep, 100%. so it is. A That's why you don't turn up with Carver, isn't it? That's why you don't yeah. go to a party with a bottle of Carver. No, 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 that would be fake. For some Sainsbury's. reason, Prosecco, Prosecco has cleverly gamed this Ooh, as well with things like yeah. um, farting angel or what? No, that's a rosé, isn't yes. it? Whispering angel is a rosé. Whispering I, I angel is. Yeah, I'm too yeah. old. I don't understand rosé, and I don't understand Prosecco. I'm just too old and grumpy um, to get my head around all this newfangled nonsense. Um, Madeira, you know, what's wrong with that? Um, but, um, but no, it is. Uh, it is interesting that um, uh, quite often, if you understand the real why, you realise that economics is a terrible, terrible guide to decision making. And also yeah. market research ain't going to tell you that. No one's yeah. ever going to sit there in the presence of 10 strangers and go, um, uh, look, mate, you know, well, they might. They might if they're drunk. OK, uh, you know, the Persians. You <laughs> There's know, a new the, sideline. Drunk the, research. The, the ancient Persians had a decision making process. Um, this would be under sort of, I don't know, who would it be? Who was the guy called Cyrus or something, wasn't it? OK. But they had a decision-making process where they would debate something first sober and then drunk. And only if they agreed in both conditions would they actually enact the policy. 
<laughs> so they actually made decisions under two separate contexts, the, the sober yeah. one and the drunk one. Yeah. And if basically, if it's almost system one and system two, or rather system two It is, two isn't it? It is system one, one and system okay? two. Yeah, yeah. Only if those two modes of decision-making were in agreement would they proceed. Now, there's something very interesting there because I think, you know, we can always get off the hook by just delivering the system two answer, okay? And without delving into system one. And this would come from, it's Lessie and McGilchrist in this case. I think it's Sperber and Mercier who are the two guys who came up with the argumentative hypothesis for human reason, that we evolved a faculty mm. of reason with the mindset of a lawyer, not with the mindset of a scientist. It's designed to defend our, us, our behaviour, to explain our behaviour and to evaluate the behaviour of others. Reason didn't really evolve in humans to actually make decisions. Mm. It's a secondary, you know, if you think about it, other animals in Darwinian terms survive perfectly well. You know, dogs don't have to have a kind of philosophy of chasing cats, right? Um, uh, you know, you know, they don't have to debate it or discuss it or explain it to other people. And so there's something really interesting there, I think, which is that it, it evolved late and it evolved for entirely different reasons to those to actual action or decision making. Makes complete sense. Obviously, it, COP26 is happening at the moment. We're all facing one of the biggest, you know, probably the biggest challenges of that we've ever encountered as a, as a species. What can behavioural science teach the world when it comes to the kind of behaviour change that we might need to deliver the, you know, deliver the future that we all want? Well, there's a fundamental mistake, which is we're trying to solve this problem on average. OK, and we're saying, OK, what do we need people to do collectively? Therefore, we, ever, we need everybody to do their fair share of that. OK, now that's the great mistake that I think health has made, in particular preventive medicine, which is it's assumed that what's good for health on average is good advice for the individual. So, mm. by the way, I, I shouldn't really tell this to your listeners, but salt is pretty harmless as a substance to the great majority of people. Most people's blood pressure isn't adversely affected by the consumption of salt. Now, obviously, if you reduce salt consumption, 10%, 5%, 3%, I don't know what it is, those people benefit a lot. And so average health improves if you tell people to eat less salt. Now, if that were all you did, it wouldn't really matter that much. We'd miss out on salt a bit. But on the other hand, you know, a lot of people would be better off. The problem is, is you start telling everybody to do everything. Don't eat salt. Don't eat processed food. Don't eat this. Don't eat beef. Don't eat fat. Don't eat carbohydrates. Until the advice becomes impossible. Okay. Now... I have a friend who, a very brilliant guy, actually, who wrote a book on the Ten Commandments. And he made the point that the Ten Commandments are just about manageable. OK. You know. <laughs> yes. All right. And what's interesting is that there are ten rules that you can just about adhere to. I haven't made yeah. any graven images for quite a while, I have to say. Uh, but they're just, <laughs> about, they're just about manageable. OK. Now, the point is that if you start overloading people with required behavioural change and you make all that behavioural change immediate universal and eternal nobody will do it okay mm. now my contention is if you broke it down so i've got a friend who's a doctor very good uh, guy at preventive um, medicine and his argument is look get people in at about the age of 55 and you can more or less tell what one or two things are most likely to give them ill health in the next 20 or 30 years, get them to focus on that. You know, in some people it might be diabetes, in some people it might be bone health, in some people it might be brain health, mental health. But but get individual people to focus on where for them it makes a difference, okay? 
and also give them some choice as to what they do to attain that end. Now, what we've done with the environmental movement, I've always said, is if you gave people a menu, by which I mean, um, you literally said, okay, first course, second course, third course, okay, big things you can do, we want you to choose two of those, medium-sized things you can do, we want you to choose three of those, small things you can do, maybe we want you to choose four, okay? Now, by the way, poor people or committed environmentalists can already tick a few of those boxes already, if you don't own a car, maybe, yeah. okay? Or 50% of the population don't fly in any given year anyway, all right? And then you also desire, you get them to pledge to their mixture of behavioural change, which, by the way, is much more manageable for the market to handle because you don't want you don't want six billion people all suddenly switching their energy source overnight because <laughs> it'd be a complete catastrophe. Okay, you want some degree of gradation to it, and in many cases, in many cases in behaviour, you just need a critical mass of people to adopt the behaviour, and it becomes normalised anyway. I mean, in 1989, I used a mobile phone on Oxford Street, and two people shouted abuse at me from passing cars. Okay, now once 10% of people had a mobile phone, that problem went away. All right. And so in many behaviours, you just need enough pe a veganism. OK, there aren't yes, that many yeah. vegans, but veganism has meant that every time I eat somewhere, even KFC or McDonald's, there's probably a plant based alternative. OK, yes. so the vegans yes. have had influence on optionality and the environment way beyond their numbers. It also means because you also have vegetarians, you're going to have a couple of vegan options, a couple of vegetarian options and some meat options. Now, at that point, even if you're just choosing your meal at random, the odds that you have a meat free meal are going to go up substantially without any actual work on your part. OK, right now, here's what's interesting. OK, if you gave people that menu and said two big things out of 10, OK, we want you to do four medium sized things out of 10, maybe. Yeah. And then here, here are the little things you can do in addition, okay? Maybe those are optional. You also design them in a way that's actually manageable. So, okay, Caroline Lucas, she's the um, MP for Brighton, or was, she's the leader of the Green Party. And I think once a year she flies to New York and she gets a load of stick for it, right? <laughs> but the point is her son lives in New York. Okay, get real, folks. Okay, I get it. Yeah. Okay, you know, if it's choice between, okay, one long haul flight a year, uh, let's face it, if she doesn't fly to New York, her son's going to have to fly over, isn't he? Okay? Yes, true, true. So the same damage is done either way, yeah. right? And so you go, look, okay, you can't ask someone whose son who lives in New York not to make a long haul flight, okay? You could, I think, reasonably say, I want you to commit not to fly one year out of two, Okay. Or not to fly more than once every year. Yeah. But you could even make it, okay, a very temporary thing, which is one of my commitments and my pledge might be don't buy any new clothes for a year. By the way, I did that because I thought it'd be interesting to do. Buying fewer clothes is boring, okay? Not buying yes. clothes yes. is weirdly quite interesting. And you start yes. discovering things like there's a business. You where discover you things you'd bought a couple of years ago, or, you know. And you actually dig things out. Yeah. And you go, yeah. oh, shit, I've forgotten about this. OK. And then you discover businesses like there's a business somewhere in um, my daughter, Lincoln, I think, where you can send an old pair of tatty shoes and you give them 35 quid and they come back looking like new. OK. Well, now, I, if, I, you, I think if, if you got 20 percent of people not to buy any new clothes for a year, businesses like that would flourish. When you go and get the car and, wash yeah. and they do. It's the like having a new car. They, they put the smell in. You, you come back and go, oh, I forgot how nice my car was. <laughs> you know? But the weird thing is it drives better as well. I mean, it now, does because yes, yes. it's simply yeah. because our perception of the car 
Yeah. And the driving experience yeah. is weirdly coloured by how clean it is. It is. And so I had an engineer friend who was driven insane by this because he thought his car was quieter and smoother every time he went to the car wash. And he, he was convinced that the car washing sort of tautened the body panels or something. Cause he was oh, really? <laughs> he was desperate to find an engineering explanation. But it's not like that. It's purely psychological, which is I've got a shinier yeah. car and my perception is hacked to the extent that the car becomes smoother and quieter as well. Yeah. Because presumably that the, the biggest thing we can do is not change our car. I mean, I was having this debate with an environmentalist friend of mine and I drive a little Fiat Panda one litre because I don't drive very far. So it's just perfect in and out of town sort of thing. Yeah. And I said, I'm thinking of getting an EV. And he said, don't keep your Fiat Panda. I was like, oh, because he said all the carbon's been used up already in the manufacturing of your car. Yeah. So why not save the carbon that has to be used for you replacing your car? You know. No, there is an even weirder argument, which is that if you drive a very small mileage, okay, like two or three thousand miles a year, go and buy a vintage Aston Martin. And the argument oh, is very it good. will stop someone <laughs> buying it who might drive 8,000 miles. Who away. might actually drive it a yeah. lot. Oh, that's yeah. so okay. Now, now, to understand this, you have to look at something I think, I'm not making this up, I promise. It's called the Kazoom Brooks Postulate. K-A-Z-Z-O-M hyphen Brooks, B-R-O-O-K-S. I'm glad you spelled this. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if you actually look at it in Wikipedia, it gives the kind of logic behind this. I mean, it is worth noting that there are problems in the wings, which is that LED lighting is so enormous inordinately more efficient than um, incandescent lighting that we're going to start wasting it you know we you know we're going to yes, light up buildings yes. all night we're going to have glowing yeah, glowing sidewalks yeah. you know why do dogs lick their own balls because they can <laughs> you know and we'll do that kind of stuff and we have to be a bit alert to that and um, I'm not sure if the Kazoom Brooks postulate covers that it's certainly covered by something called the Givons paradox which was that more efficient steam engines increased demand for coal because when you made steam engines more efficient, there were vastly more profitable applications for steam engines. Oh, you suddenly opened up the market so you to opened do a lot up, of things yeah, that yeah, couldn't be done yeah. before. Right. So the yeah. Givon's paradox, which was named after, a, I think, a Mancunian economist. If I'm right, the Manchester University Economic Society is called the Givon's Society. Uh, so he must have been some sort of mank. Well, I have to say, I, I'm, yeah. I'm going to definitely coin the, the second-hand Aston Martin concept. Yeah. No, no, uh, it's, it's not popular. totally... I mean, you could argue that for a low-mileage motorist, actually, yeah. buying a Land Rover Defender ain't actually a bad thing to do because you don't drive very far and the bloody thing lasts forever. You know, I, can't, I yeah. can't remember what percentage of them are still on the road. You could also argue, that actually, that by spending money... When you buy the vintage Aston Martin... Now, this sounds like monstrous um, self-justifying belief here... But when you buy the Aston Martin, you're paying for brand value and meaning, yeah. not yeah. goods. And so when mm. you buy expensive or premium brands, you are contributing towards dematerialization. Now, mm. you know, we contribute towards dematerialization when, when we watch something on Netflix rather than, say, going stock car racing. OK, that's not so that Netflix doesn't. I'm not being naive here. Netflix does have an environmental impact. You know, we don't get this for free, but it's generally better than what the activities it replaces. You know, I think you know it's fair to say. OK, so brands can contribute towards dematerialization and that people pay, you know, a white T-shirt with a logo on it or with a message on it. OK, it was Catherine Hamlet who discovered that, wasn't it, or invented that. But a T-shirt with a message on, OK, or with a brand on. You're paying for the brand. It, so essentially, a large chunk of your money is not going towards procuring cotton. Mm. It's going towards the funding the creation of meaning. 
And the creation of meaning can be a value creation process which is not very carbon intensive. And presumably, you would also want to wear it because of the signalling benefit of being out seen with my. Uh, more than that, Prada, it might have. More know. than that, it might have a second-hand value, which a plain white t-shirt and second-hand value. So it lasts longer, and also <coughs> yeah. you're incentivised, a bit like the car cleaning, to keep it, you know, keep it in good shape. So that Land Rover Defender, well. actually, if you bought okay. a Land Rover Defender, you could probably sell it to some bloke who'll buy it for you for seven yeah. grand, spend a year doing it up, yeah. and sell it for twenty in some immaculate state. Or, better still, it might even end up being electrified. Who knows? That's true. But brand so value... I, no, I, I got it in fairness, yeah. OK. I'm guilty. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel awkward making this argument because working in advertising, yeah. it feels like so, such a self-serving load of bollocks. It does. OK. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I almost think I'm guilty of what I think is called, um, what is it, effective... Um, you know, it's effectively, you know, effective reasoning, distorted reasoning. It's, you know, a massive case of confirmation bias. You would want to believe yes. this. You would, wouldn't you? You'd want to believe this. But in fairness, the the Guardian half believed it. OK, so I, I had the Guardian not picked up on it and said Sutherland ingeniously suggests that. OK, I would I wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have had the confidence to advance the argument. But it does yeah. strike me. I mean, okay, there is there is a weird movement. My daughter's a bit of a pinko, and she tells me about these things. There's a thing called post scarcity luxury communism. Okay, but there's also a kind of consumerist movement which suggests you buy very little, but what you buy is of spectacularly high quality. I love that argument. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm always trying to convince my wife of that argument. Actually, yeah, <laughs> and, I, 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 and actually, you can. You can reframe purchases. So I bought a thing. Um, I, I don't know if you've got those name Muso uh, sort of streaming devices, NAIM, the hi-fi thing. No, no. And they're, I mean, they're about a grand, okay? It's a monstrous extravagance, okay? I mean, really crazy. But I thought, I want this thing, but I can't really justify it. And then I thought, hold on a second, okay? This is like Lego, okay? No one ever throws Lego away because you can repurpose it or you, or you pass it on to your kids because Lego is backward compatible. Okay. And I suddenly thought, hold on, if I buy this thing for a thousand quid, one, I'm still going to be using it in 10 years time. Now, it might be that some new thing has come in and I've downgraded it to the bedroom from the main room, but I'm still going to be using it. There's no chance in hell I'm ever going to throw this out. I might sell it. Okay. I might, Patek Philippe, pass it on to my kids. In yes, fact, pass, one it on, yeah. pass it on yeah. to my kids. Okay. But there's no way that thing's ever going to end up in landfill. Secondly, if I get 10 years good use out of it, that actually constitutes about seven quid a month. Which Now, Paul Dolan, who's a great expert on happiness, owns a Rolex. And I said, Paul, I said, don't want to, you know, don't want to be Mr. Picky here, but you've written very famous papers saying that the correlation between wealth and happiness is doesn't exactly disappear, but it tails off significantly. Uh, once you reach a certain threshold of wealth. So I said, Paul, having written about this, what the hell are you doing earning a Rolex? And he said, well, <laughs> two things. He said, if I divide the cost by the pleasure I get every time I look at it, it doesn't really cost very much. And he said, and when my oldest son's 21, I'm going to give it to him. So it'll end up having about 45 years use. So cost per day is really rather small. And so getting people to reframe their purchases and to think about futurity when you buy things does, I think, drive people into buying uh, less of better. Yes, which makes a lot of sense. Because we don't, we, do, we genuinely, I think there are a lot mm. of things. The worst case is shopping at an airport. Don't buy anything at an airport. Your brain turns mm. to mush, okay? And you buy at an airport for the short-term hit 
I don't fully understand mm. why, but there's something to do with stress or it, maybe it's a bit L'Oreal because I'm worth it. I don't it, quite it, know it's what's that, going on. It? It's your frame yeah. of mind is indulgent. And, uh, and, and an evolutionary psychologist would say, well, you buy the £200 pair of sunglasses. I haven't done that, actually. OK, but you buy the £90 pair of sunglasses partly because you're travelling, so you're going to be in the presence of strangers, so your yeah. need to status signal becomes acutely more exaggerated. You know, if I'd turned up in my local pub in Monmouth, OK, with a pair of Machino sunglasses, everybody <laughs> would have just taken the piss. Okay, but if you're in a big city, you kind of need more of that shit because nobody knows who you are. That was the whole American Express. Do you know me campaign, by the way? You know, you need the American Express card because when you leave your hometown, you don't carry any social credentials with you. Well, if, if my own experience doesn't go by, I would never have bought 200 pound sunglasses until I took up cycling. And then suddenly you've got this aerodynamic benefit or this UV protect. You know, suddenly you give yourself a, which isn't rational, by the way, because a £20 pair. Can OK, OK, I've got to ask you this. Thing. Have you got into <laughs> titanium in your bike? I, no, I, I have friends who have. I, I'm, a, I'm a carbon. I mean, again, this is ridiculous because with a carbon frame, you're spending about twice an aluminium frame. Mm. But you have about a 10% comfort benefit. Yeah. to your backside in terms of absorption of the of the and you have about a 10 percent lightness benefit which on a very steep hill yeah. could make you five or six <coughs> seconds quicker so the, the the marginal gains are infinitesimally small relative to the cost that you have to pay to, to buy the said upgrade but you somehow you convince yourself that 200 pound sunglasses <laughs> and a 2000 pound frame is but then is this, is this bad? Because there are many worse ways you could have spent the £2,000. I don't know the answer well, to this question, OK? Quite possibly, um, yeah. And um, equally, you could argue that uh, by spending money on rivalrous goods rather than genuine innovation, we're not doing as much of a service to our fellow man because we're spending money to do them down, to compete against them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you a good example, given you a taff. My grandparents, he was a doctor, my grandfather, I'd never <laughs> met him. But um, he was the fourth man in Wales to own a dishwasher, which obviously, really? prompts, well, well, obviously <laughs> prompts the response of there's posh for you. Yes. Um, but, but interestingly, when he bought the dishwasher, which was the price of a small car, basically. Yeah. Okay, what he was doing, not intentionally, but he was doing it anyway, was he was helping make dishwashers affordable for a mass market. It was the, the classic case that the first people to buy into a category are in many ways providing early stage funding for the interesting yes. innovations. And I do worry about luxury goods. The worry I have is that fashion, someone described as innovation without improvement, that it's not as if, OK, outside Gore-Tex and a few areas like that, yeah. it's not as if clothing's actually doing a better job for anybody. It's just doing a better job of signalling status. And that tends to be a zero-sum or negative-sum game, whereas better dishwashers are a positive-sum game. So, yeah, it, so, so where we spend our money is really, really interesting because also I think status-seeking is innate. Okay, to some extent, but you can change the currency. Mm. Now, my friend Jeffrey Miller, who wrote Spent and the Mating Mind, he, for example, predicted that social media would change behaviour quite a lot because it changed what it was acceptable to signal. So I have not posted a picture of my electric car on Twitter because posting a picture of your car on social media is kind of a naff thing to do, whereas yeah. weirdly, posting a picture of your holiday is not. 
Okay. Yes. If I'm on the Maldives and I pick, well, I'm just not going to do those stupid fucking pictures of your legs. Okay. <laughs> you know. Okay. Yeah. You know, and the, st- the uh, fucking yeah. drink next to you, right? I'm mean, for crying yeah, out loud. Yeah, yeah. I used to do deliberate counter signalling on social media, whereas I'd always yeah. post a picture of myself at yeah. KFC on the old Kent Road or something. You know, keeping yeah. it real, man. Okay. But but what's with weird? Okay, you can signal your for some reason on social media, you can signal that you spent four grand on a holiday. But even though my car's electric, right? I wouldn't take a picture. Yeah of it and posted um no. now so so we can change the currency of status seeking and so there isn't at least in theory any obstacle to making it high status to behave in a sustainable way that feels like the aim here doesn't it yeah yeah yeah, yeah that and you could like you could argue yeah, that yeah. a lot of businesses diageo i think um mm. uh, business i would admire people in the booze business are always nice aren't they actually I've, I've, they are yeah they are actually yeah, yeah. People, you know booze marketers are a particularly nice group and quite responsible as well yeah, i yeah, think no, it's the sort of yeah i think it's the feeling that they've got something that's quite potent and therefore they need to be responsible with it that, i also think yeah. that the people at the top of booze businesses acknowledge the importance of marketing so you don't have that paranoia yeah. if you're all, a telecom marketing if you're a yes. telecoms yes. marketer okay you're yeah. kind of paranoid because you spend all your day dealing with engineers who regard you as a ludicrous flake yeah. who's part of the coloring in department um and, and you're there choosing the font for the mobile phone plan and you're down at that level aren't you you reprographics with a degree basically you know yeah. and yeah. and so the booze marketers are a bit more confident because you know it's turtles all the way up and um so i think i think that's really interesting but um but diageo i think they said you know if we said look what is the purpose of diageo it's to get the world not to drink more but to demand a slightly better drink yes and you know, brilliant. you know, which which I think is, you know, and I think part of the problem, by the way, is it's easier to measure sales than it is to measure um, uh, margin. Uh, it's, e- it's easy to lay credit to a sales increase than it is to lay credit to a margin, because an awful lot, an awful lot of marketing works through non-margin erosion, which is having yeah. to prove a negative, which is kind of tough. You know, one one thing that actually jumped out in your book as well, and I think this is an Ogilvy campaign, isn't it? Looking at the substitution, looking at I think it was in Germany, like you know, you could be here nineteen dollar train fare. That was Ogilvy in fact. It, it, it is my favourite campaign of the last ten years. Yeah, it's that's genius. Genius you know, reframing. You show a yeah. site that's in Germany, and you frame the cost of the return tra- train journey with the cost of the return flight. Yeah, and so you stop people going. Genius. Gosh, going by train is expensive. Yeah, and you frame it against a, 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 a first of all a, a less environmentally sustainable, but also a more expensive alternative. No, yeah. it is. Well, it I is. had no, I had no idea Germany was that beautiful. <coughs> no, and had that that much to go and see. So I was like, funny enough, all, it's actually a bit of a mystery to me that because. Okay, it hasn't got much of a coastline, but Germany wouldn't be a bad tourist destination. They're fantastic towns. Culturally and architecturally, it's absolutely magnificent. Everything bloody works. It's also very reasonably priced because Germans are um, a bit stingy, you know, by which I mean in a good way, in the sense that it doesn't matter how rich you are as a German, you won't spend six euros on a cappuccino. Because they just, yes. you know, in their sort of weird Protestant way or whatever, they just regard that as wrong. Whereas in France, it's like the sky's the bloody limit, isn't it? You know, and <laughs> yes. um, and so it's a very good place to go on holiday. And the reason nobody goes on holiday there is partly because they've never done any tourist advertising. Yeah. And the yeah, only I, exception I, I, is those cruises down the Rhine. Those are the only thing you ever get which suggests that you might have a nice time going to Germany. But they've got a bit of coastline. The climate's actually pretty nice in the summer. Yep. 
And, yeah, um, get down south, you've got mountains, yeah. you've got lakes, and there's, there's all sorts going for it. Yeah, you know, right about price, actually. One thing I found very strange, I actually launched uh, Robinson's Fruit Shoot in Germany years and years Ooh. ago. And um, it's the only place I've been to, bizarrely, where we, we had the single unit for sale and we had the four-pack for sale. And the four-pack was precisely four times the single pack. Now, of course, when you buy a multi-pack in the UK... You, what effectively you're getting rewarded for bulk, right? But in the German way of thinking, it's like, why would you do that? A 10-pack Capri Sun was 10 times a single pack. The the, the multi-buy concept just didn't exist. It was Everything was linear, calculated down to the There's also item, peculiarity, if I'm right, I don't know if this is still true, but Coke was always very expensive in Germany, wasn't it? Is that right? I, I, it, I mean, it, it I enjoyed sort the of... Peps- yeah, it was completely dominant actually because Pepsi, I think, had a two percent share. Because I was at this is when I was at Britvic, and ah. I remember the uh, yeah. Whereas here, uh, Pepsi had like a thirty percent, thirty five percent share of cola or something. So it was much more. The rivalry was in the UK is very, very, very tough. Out there, it was ninety eight percent Coke and two percent Pepsi. In fact, actually, the two percent was Pepsi Max. It was the only chink. In the Coke Armour in Germany, it was all Pepsi Max, in fact, because there was they, they rationally didn't see a need for a regular in diet. So the, the, the cultural difference I always <laughs> loved is talking to people where they both at McDonald's and KFC, where they say that Germany is basically a bit of a no hope zone for drive through. And the reason is, I can't remember what it is, but it's something like 60% of Germans will not allow food or drink in their car under any circumstances. Oh. Because it's oh, kind really? of like a temple. So even water, <laughs> even having a bottle of water in a German car is considered fairly controversial. And um, the other lovely thing, which is the, the fines that Volkswagen had to pay in the United States are slightly unfair, given the fact that I drove around the United States for three weeks and only saw one Volkswagen in the entire time I was there. <laughs> and one of the reasons why, after DDB and the Beetle and so forth, one of the reasons why Volkswagen sales were so low in the United States was that for a time the Wolfsburg engineers refused to put cup holders in the cars. Really? And the American wow. sales guys were going, look, you don't understand. Yeah. We can't sell that's a car. A car, a car, a car here is a beverage and a big on wheel. 16 ounce one as well. So, yeah, so my new electric car actually has two cup holders in the frunk. Okay. Uh, it's the Mustang Mach-E. And the frunk also has a drain. This is the front trunk. The frunk yeah. also has a drain with the idea that you can fill it with ice and put drinks in it. Okay. Oh, they actually well, sell the ice so in the or event, and then, no, no, yeah. it's just you can use it. I think it's this tailgating thing Americans do, where your car is oh sort of, the tailgate party, yeah, you, the tailgate you it party up and then thing, you serve off the back of it. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I, you know, if I ever get invited to Dr. Dre's pool parties, I'm sure this will come in very handy. You know, but <laughs> um, but but the fascinating thing uh, is that you have these completely different attitudes. Where in Germany, the the, the, the literally uh, now, of course, it's partly affected, I think, by automatic versus manual. So a cup holder makes a bit more sense if you drive an automatic than if you drive a manual. Yeah, because you're not you've bashing got, into you've the got one, You've got time, one hand yeah. free yeah, yeah. as well, and you've got more space. And you've got a hand put, free. Yeah, yeah, you've got a hand yeah. free. Okay. But even so, I mean, it was it, it was drive-through in Germany is not something they're really comfortable with at all. Very strange. The other thing I found is to give credit to the Germans, actually, because I, I was working there 15 years ago, as I say, when I was doing fruit shoot, was... Um, they were so far ahead on the environment. So yeah. to the extent that most, most car, going back to our fizzy drink conversation, most fizzy drinks are bought in glass. No, no, plastic, but recycled plastic. And you bought it by the crate. Again, you pay the linear price. You don't get any bulk discount. 
but you had to bring the crate back to the shop you bought. It's not you couldn't kind of so so I found as a as a visitor it was in, That's right. incredibly annoying because I'd buy a drink from one shop and then I couldn't drop off the packaging at somewhere else in the country. So, but it's, but it was all designed to bring. <coughs> they have you know, two very weird blind source. spots. One of which is no speed limits. They drive in a weirdly environmentally unfriendly way at very high speeds. Yes, and sure. their opposition to nuclear power. But other than that, they were way ahead of yeah. us. Way um, ahead. Way yeah. way ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, very good. I think the opposition. Um, so listen, to, it's worth noting, by the way, that what we tend to have this narrative that all protest movements are good. And they're always fighting against evil. I mean, I always look back with slight irony, which is that in my student days, the people on the left were preoccupied with um, uh, 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 support the miners and uh, opposing nuclear power were two yes. very big left wing yes. shibboleths. Yes. With a You're later right. one being the same, funnily enough, the German friend lecturing me on the on, on diesels. Yeah, which I've always yes. I hate. Yeah, I fucking hate diesels. I mean, well, of course, it was Thatcher that closed the mines. Of course, so, you know. No, no, no. Therefore. No, no. Uh, I mean, when Boris made that joke, but nonetheless, it's not an irrelevant... What we mustn't forget, Okay, we tend to look at all process movements as if they're destined to be right and good. But I mean, you know, you go back to the 18th century, there are massive anti-popish protests and riots in London, Okay. No, it would be quite, quite. I did say, you know, on the basis of the sealed knot, you know, of kind of historical yeah. reenactment, it'd be quite fun to stage an anti-popery demonstration in London just for the nostalgia, not through yes. any animus towards the uh, community. Um, but, but I mean, you know, it is worth remembering that, I mean, Thatcher was very, very early, oddly, to pick up on the environmental message. I'm not quite mm. sure. I think it might have been through friendship with someone, an academic, who was also an early proponent but it didn't only actually and to some extent the right was more uh, environmentally conscious than the left for much of the 20th century and it, it, I, well, I, the reason i say this I, I think it's unfortunate if this becomes politicized yeah that's true because that's then true. you you automatically create a group of people who are reputational losers in the event yeah. that they change their minds yeah and this is where the queen was so right to say you know to, to cop rise above it yeah. you know this is the moment to rise above it. Brilliant. Well, listen, this is a great point to um, mention your new book, of course, Rory, yep. which is out. When, when, uh, Transport for Humans, when does it come? Uh, it's out, I think, in, I, th- I think it's this coming week. It might be the following week. I'm very bad at dates, but let's assume sometime before the 18th of November. You can pre-order it on Amazon if you wish. I'm supposed to be recording the audio book this weekend, which I will try. Are you? Oh, you do your own audio for it? You have to do your own audio, in my view, because if you you hire an actor to do the audio book, they're only judged on two things, clarity and fidelity to the original text. Now, I change the audio book quite a lot as I dictate it because there are things you'd write that you wouldn't really say. And, you know, obviously there's something like a footnote. I rework it into the text conversationally as an aside. Mm. And you can use lots of kind of emotional, um, uh, you know, timbre to your voice. You can get a lot across. Whereas audio books tend to be read in a monotone. Because the person's yeah, I, just trying exactly. to be accurate. It's far less interesting. Terrible, yeah. terrible. Yeah, yeah. No, it's terrible. I, I, I can well imagine why you'd give it so much more colour and depth. How long will it take you, by the way? Because uh, uh, it's 280 can, odd pages. It, it, what, what's that? It's, um, in... it's about 80,000, 70 to 80,000 words. So mm. you could, you could at a pinch, record that, I think, in about... Let me get this right. 
Uh, actually, it's surprising. I think you record about a thousand words in ten minutes, so that would make it eight hundred minutes, which would make it about thirteen, fourteen hours, assuming I didn't take a break. Okay. So you yeah. could theoretically do it in a day. It just wouldn't be a very nice day. No. Um, it's very interesting that, in fact, because I one of the things I learned during lockdown is I uh, I started doing voice dictation because you can speak a hell of a lot faster than you can type. Now, you subsequently uh, upload it yeah. to otter.ai and you edit it. Yeah. I'm not suggesting I send it straight off. One guy who could do that, by the way, the late A.A. Gill. Did you know this? No. He I was didn't. dyslexic, but he had an extraordinary talent. Now, bear in mind he was paid £5 a word, okay, because he was a star journalist at the time. And every week he rang up, because newspapers used to have these dictation departments, okay, so that foreign correspondents could just ring up and dictate. And A.A. Gill was so lucid that he could effectively, he would ring up, dictate his Sunday Times column of a thousand words, more or less, well, I think word perfect, beginning to end, and say, thank you very much, goodbye. Not from notes, not from written notes, straight off his Amazing. head. Amazing. Uh, nobody else, I think, in journalism knows of anybody else who could do that. Um, you know, there were people who, uh, I, Paul Johnson, somebody said of me of Paul Johnson, who is a great journalist, um, he's still alive actually, but, uh, you know, well known 10, 15, 20 years ago in The Spectator, former editor of The New Statesman. And they said the amazing thing with him is you'd basically say, OK, I want, you know, 4,000 words on Louis the Fourteenth, And like three <laughs> hours later, bang, they'd come, you know, they'd come delivered and written more or less from the contents of his own brain. But it's, uh, it's a remarkable thing to be able to do. I think it's partly why I enjoy podcasting, actually, because, mm. you, you know, you can get everything across and down and communicated in, in an hour, a the, couple of hours. The Australians have introduced a magazine it. called Podcast Reader and its transcripts of the world's best podcasts in magazine form. Really? Yeah. Oh. Have a look. I've just been sent a load of copies. What's it called again? Go on. It, well, I, is, is this a video podcast or audio one? Cause I can't... No, no, no. We're audio here. Audio, audio OK. Here. I'm going to show you a copy and then you can read it out. Go I'm on. Going to fetch one. We, we will describe it to the audience so it's called uh, podcast oh, yes. reader and it says podcast this, reader this month's edition rory sutherland shaddy barch william dalrymple daniel kahneman eric weinstein the podcast transcripts of the world's best long-form podcasts and um uh, it's featuring podcasts from jolly swagman and econ talk i think econ talks my talk with russ roberts actually um, and a variety of others but it's worth noting that, of course, there's a lot of good content in podcasts, but we as Brits don't quite have the drive time that Americans do. But a talk here, again, Optimism Over Confidence and the Value of Intuition, which is Daniel Kahneman talking with Tyler Cowan in 2018. So they take the best of the podcast world and transcribe wow. it. Wow. I can't believe they're taking podcasts and put it into a magazine format. It's, That's incredible. Funny enough, it's actually the, it, the English-speaking world. It's not uncommon in French yeah. or German magazines to have an interview reported, ver, you know, verbatim. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, 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 the new, a few American magazines will do it, but it's much rarer in the English-speaking world where we tend to rewrite things um, than it is uh, in other languages. For whatever and there's something reason. authentic about it, you know, the, the, saying how it's actually said, rather than. Oh my God, it's a much a lower effort grammar. way of. It's a much. So <laughs> yes. when we finish this thing, we probably will have produced. I don't know um, uh, how many interesting question. Probably produced twenty five thousand words. Okay, in this yeah. conversation, which is a actually more than that, possibly, which is a short book. 
Well, I, I met someone actually who said to me, he, he, he Barbara Cartland did it by the way. She dictated all her yeah. books, which is why, yeah, along well, with yeah, A.A. Gill, slightly what, different um, quality level, but yeah. I was chatting to a publisher actually, and and and, and he was saying to me, you know, because I was talking about different ideas I got for a book, and he said, "Tell you what, John, you do me a ninety-minute podcast on that topic, and I'll turn it into a book for you." You know, she that's he said, help. "You've done the hard yards." That's really yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then therefore, you know, the, the number of books you could get out there at the spit. And he also, we also were going to collaborate on a, we might, might still do this actually, from idea to Amazon bestseller in seven days by taking this approach. So my, my job would be a 90 minutes to our podcast, pick the subject, get the chapters roughly right, get the main <coughs> headlines. I would speak it. He would then translate, he would translate it, edit it, get, you know, get it into the kind of grammar. We'd then pick an off the shelf design get it printed through Amazon and then we'd do a day. What you suggest actually for the promotion is that what I would do is pre-agree to do like eight interviews in one day where I would give all my knowledge for free in return for the audience all agreeing to buy the book and do a review. And we'd, we'd pick it the day before the, the charts are out and this sort of thing. And we're going to set ourselves the challenge of getting within business or within marketing. We, I, you know, I couldn't get to the top of the charts overall. But I thought that's a wicked challenge from idea for a book to Amazon bestseller in seven days. So I've got an interesting, my, the idea for my next book is, um, which I won't give away completely, but it's to do it in, uh, uh, you know, uh, 10 or 12 online talks and then convert hmm. the talks into chapters. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Same principle. Yeah. Because part yeah. of my problem, I've done a lot of journalism. I've done a lot of advertising, copywriting. I find structuring things at the five, six, ten thousand 10,000 word level absolutely hideously di difficult. Well, that's my problem, you see, yeah. because I, 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 I'm... I rewrite and, and tweak and edit and change and prevaricate and worry. All, when I'm writing, when I'm podcasting, I don't give a single thought to it. I just say what comes to my mind. And that's where he said to me, don't worry, do the podcast. We'll make it the book. I think we worry <laughs> about sequential flow far too much, that humans yeah. are actually very good at taking uh, leaps and changes of direction yeah. far that's more right. than... Yeah. Because I think academics in particular are taught to write in this yeah. way, which is designed to win an argument. But winning that's an right. argument and yeah. holding attention are not the same thing, in fact. Yep. Yeah. And that's why the, that's why you caught my attention with the with the magazine, because there's some there's some more humanity that comes through the page when you actually you read as someone speaks rather than the crafted, clever, constructed, yeah. formulaic kind of approach. You know what I mean? Actually, maybe there's a little bit of you know, uh, uniqueness that, that that's attractive. Yeah, the sort of loyally approach where you're trying to win a robust argument doesn't actually, and you know, because if you look at mm. ordinary human conversation, which is 100,000 years older than writing is, okay, it, you know, there are digressions all over the place. You know, anecdotes, yeah. digressions, yeah. Uh, you know, jokes. Uh, it's a much, much messier thing than the written words tends to be. And, you know, you, you look at Shakespeare, okay, you know, you cut from a king to a couple of pissed people, you know. Yes. Perfectly yes, fine. It's dialogue, we, we, isn't it? We it's, can cope with this. Yeah. We really can. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, de definitely. Well, listen, this, this is a great place to wrap up, isn't it? Because I, I, I'm i very excited to see where your 10 talks is going to lead for the next book. But uh, but quickly to a plug. So Transport for Humans out roughly the 18th of November. I'll leave some sh show note links to it as well so people can download and do that. And Rory, if people want to get hold of you, you're you're active on Twitter. I notice at Rory Sutherland. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so all one word, touch. Rory. All one word. It's been a, it's been an honour and a, a real blast. And thank you for giving us a sneak preview of some of the ideas and thoughts and much else, of course, which is always guaranteed with a conversation with you. 
It's a huge pleasure, John. Thank you very much indeed and see you soon. So I hope you enjoyed that with the man himself, Mr. Rory Sutherland. I could genuinely listen to Rory for hours. His view of the world is unlike any other. And I always find myself captivated uh, whenever I'm listening to him. Um, Listen, if you like that episode and you like other content from the Uncensored CMO, please do go and leave me a review. Uh, Go to Apple Podcasts, leave me a review. Just remember that five is the best. Also, if you'd like more content like this, please hit the subscribe button. If you hit subscribe, you will be notified every time an Uncensored CMO podcast comes out. Finally, if you want to get in contact with me, you can do so. I'm on Twitter at Uncensored CMO. And if you go onto LinkedIn, you can find me as John Evans. That's John without an H, John Evans. We have lots of episodes. In fact, I'm going to a weekly schedule from this episode. So you'll be able to get even more great conversations with fantastic people all about marketing. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate you sticking with it and uh, see you next time.